yeah, just just give an intro of who you are, and then we can just move on to you know your background, how you got into what you're doing at the moment. Okay. So thank you for having me. First of all, uh, I'm Natalia Toro, and I'm a Colombian clinical hypnotist and mind reconditioning coach to top executives and to executives that are entrepreneurs as well. My background is a little bit all over the place, but when you look at it, everything kind of connects. Um, I studied journalism and mass communications at university, and I was an investigative journalist for nearly eight years back in Colombia. And I was always very passionate about investigating and covering corruption stories. I won a National Journalism Award in 2011. And then life happened and I ended up living in Dubai in 2013. And the thing is, when I came to Dubai, I didn't know English. I just learned English as a second language 10 years ago. So. I couldn't really get into media also because the market here works very different. There is no such a thing as investigative journalism here because nothing really happens here. Mm. So I, I, I got a job in marketing, doing some like bits and pieces in marketing in the automotive industry. And then after that, I kind of refined my English a little bit more. I'm still learning, but trying. And um, then what happens is after two and a half years or three years of working in marketing, traveling around GCC, going to uh, exhibitions in the construction industry, because that was my next job as a marketing person. um, I quit. I quit as my boss and I saw that there was no room for growth anymore. So I set up a marketing agency with a friend of mine, but at that time I started having severe symptoms of anxiety. Mm. I later on discovered that I suffered from anxiety all my life. But then what happened is that in 2016, sorry, I have a hair bothering me. In 2016, I had a series of losses uh, in my family and two of my best friends also passed away. In the same year, uh, my uncle died by suicide. And then my best friend from university and my best friend from school both died from illnesses the same year. And then my nervous system couldn't cope anymore. I was alone in Dubai um, with all these life-changing um, events, not being able to be there, not being able to kind of reconcile that reality. And then my anxiety got totally dysregulated. So I stopped sleeping. Um, I was drinking a lot, trying to numb the uneasiness and all the emotional pain and all that. And then I started feeling physically ill and I started going to several doctors. I went to neurologists, I went to um, autoimmunity doctors or yeah, the doctor that kind of sees your immune system. I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in my stomach, which I now know is produced by the mind as well. Obviously, when your nervous system, if your nervous system is dysregulated because there is wounds in your mind, in your emotional mind, then that translates into illness in your body. If your nervous system is dysregulated, 
your immune system is dysregulated. They are connected. So after going to so many doctors and trying so many treatments, um, one thing is I never wanted to get medicated only for sleeping. Mm. And those medications were like for a week and then they didn't work anymore. So one day I just asked someone who was close to me to help me with something that was not going to another doctor because it was not working. No one knew what was wrong with me. I felt deeply sick. I felt that I couldn't sleep. My body was shaking all the time. I had muscle pain. I had lots of intrusive thoughts. I used to sing. I used to sing in, in hotels and do like, I had like kind of two careers as a singer right. here in Dubai. And I had my, my marketing uh, consulting just taking off. And then I remember that I was petrified as much as I love music. I love singing. Um, I used to have to drink a lot, almost to get like borderline drunk, to be able to go on stage and sing because I was totally terrified as much as I liked it. And I wanted to be a good singer and I wanted to, and I needed the job. I needed this second job. Um, I had to always numb myself and my nerves and my anxiety. So after I asked this person, because I felt really scared that things were not going away and I was starting to have like, um, suicidal ideations, um, like negative, really, really negative thoughts on the fact that I couldn't sleep that really messes up with your mind. So this person suggested a friend of them that did a type of um, healing therapy. This person didn't even know what it was, but they got in contact with their friend and their friend turned out to be someone who was in the last stages of finishing her clinical hypnosis certification with the Hypnotherapy Standards Council of the UK. And then she saw me next day at midday and I went for a session and I don't remember half of what happened in the session. Because obviously sometimes, sometimes hypnosis looks like a deep relaxation state where your mind, your logical mind is offline and all you are doing is kind of listening with your emotional body. But then that night for the first time in, I'm telling you, maybe 18 months, I slept five hours in a row. So obviously when you manage to get some proper sleep and when you manage to to get your brain to rest, you wake up next day with a different outlook to life. Mm. And this made me, yeah. And this made me extremely curious. I kept on going, but only like for three or four sessions, because this is the thing with hypnosis. It, this is not therapy. This is change work. This is about changing your emotional circuitry. This is about changing the unconscious side of you so that your nervous system, so that you feel safe again, being you and with your life and with the normal stressors that life always has. And then I got extremely curious and I kind of started feeling my job is so boring and how come I could overcome anxiety, severe anxiety, just in three sessions. And how come is this easy? How come is this, um, simple, not easy, I would say, but it's simple. 
And I started reading and investigating and researching and doing as a researcher and as an investigator that I am, I just went online. What is hypnosis? Why is it so magical? Why, what's happening? What really does to you? And then I, I came to a moment of self-honesty and I said, I don't want to do marketing anymore. I'm kind of sick and tired of these clients meetings and all this stress. And I truly want to develop a career where I can be, help people that are going through what I went through, something similar. It's on a spectrum. So some people will be at the higher spectrum of anxiety. Some people will be at the lower spectrum of anxiety. Um, but I wanted to help people that was going through something similar to me, or they, they are going through, through a phase of their life where they desperately want something to change the way they think, the way they act, the way they feel habitually, and they don't know how, because when you have tried it all logically, right? Logically from the rational mind with deliberate action and it doesn't work. It is time to go deep into the unconscious, into that basement where all the things that you have experienced in life are stored. And they formed this emotional memory of safety or unsafety, unworthiness or worthiness, right? And, and change it from there so that your automatic thoughts, behaviors, and actions and feelings change on their own because it feels like if it changes on their own, you are not really doing anything consciously after you have sessions, but because the emotional understanding of a past trauma, a past wound, or a feeling that you had encoded in your nervous system is changed, then Everything else you do in life changes by default. So I closed my company. I closed my marketing consulting company and started studying with the mother of who was my hypnotist. And she was doing the last certification of clinical hypnosis, accredited by the General Hypnotherapy Standards Council of the UK. And I said, I'm going to do it because this is probably my last opportunity to study with this person, to get accredited in the UK. And I did it and I did it. And it's been five, six years. Um, and in the beginning, I started helping people with all kinds of problems. I'm talking from, and I still do, even though I'm kind of concentrated or focused on a niche, I, I still get clients for smoking cessation. Mm, very specific behavioral problems like nail biting, binge eating, things like that. But then I realized that all of those are anxiety. They are a product of a dysregulation of your anxiety. And your anxiety is something that we need. We need like anxiety is everything. It's what protects us from dying too soon. And what happens is depending on your life experience, your upbringing, um, the things you were exposed to, then that dysregulation of the anxiety response, that is our protective mechanism, uh, gets, gets um, 
projected or gets manifested in different areas of your life. And there is where we have all these names, social anxiety, um, workplace anxiety, panic attacks, which is the highest level of the spectrum, um, relationship anxiety, um, chronic anxiety, um, generalized anxiety disorder, when a person has symptoms in so many scenarios and in many in many parts of their life, which is what I was suffering with. But basically everything comes from the dysregulation of your natural alarm system. So that your body and your nervous system, when, it's, when they are dysregulated because of experiences of the past, you start thinking, acting, feeling, reacting in ways that do not match the outside reality. And what happens is most people would say, I'm not traumatized. What wounds? I don't have any wounds. Mm. My childhood was perfect. And the thing is that there is a lot of, there is lack of education on how the mind really works because it's not what happened to you in the past. It's not what you were exposed to. It's what happened inside you when you experienced something. That is where the trauma comes from and where the wounds are. For example, if you were laughed at in a school when you were reading in front of your classmates and you were seven years old, that felt like dying at that moment because you have an underdeveloped brain. Because the only narrative that your brain is able to make is there is something wrong with me. And that forms an unconscious belief. However, now, if you think about that as an adult, it doesn't look like, oh, that's not a tragic event. That mm. is not traumatic because your brain is now fully developed because you have a critical faculty and a logical way of thinking. You can think about also the outside things. Not, the narrative is not self-centered anymore as it was when all those beliefs get formed. And then... In this, um, in this journey, um, maybe three or four years ago, I started realizing that I resonated a lot with male executives. For some reason, all my clients started to be male, which made me happy and made me, maybe my sense of purpose with my career and my journey elevated because obviously of the history of my family and the loss of my uncle, who was a, a top executive. He was a doctor, but he was the owner of his own clinic and all this. And um, then I realized that in the corporate scene or when you are a business owner, obviously there is this consensus of calmness and collectiveness, like you you got to become uncollected because you are the leader or because you are kind of climbing the ladder to the leadership, right? But then, public speaking, being confident in meetings, um, people perceiving you as a person who is in control of your emotions, your body, your voice, um, your ideas, your speech is super important. And it could... Um, it could propulse your career or it can bring it down. And that is super stressing. And 
many of the executives that I was seeing with symptoms of anxiety, different symptoms, rumination, um, waking up in the night, not working, not being able to sleep properly, um, feeling uneasy all the time, um, also had one symptom or not one symptom, but a cluster of symptoms that were very common among them. And it was this lack of bodily control, lack of control of their nervousness and anxiety when they knew they were going to present or they were going, for example, to the end of the year convention with their peers or with the board of directors or even with their teams, with their teams. And some of them even would suffer days, nights before the event from mm. insomnia, not being able to be present for their loved ones because they were living in their head. They are living in their head all the time. And it's when you have anxiety, it becomes a vicious cycle, very difficult to stop that you are scanning how you feel every single second of your day. So that scanning which your brain thinks is making you do so that it keeps you safe from the next anxiety meltdown, from the next panic attack, from the next um, episode. What ultimately does is create a new episode of anxiety out of the anticipation. So a protective mechanism of your brain that is natural actually creates the next episode. And it's very interesting because Obviously, we see online and we see everywhere now that we are like information is available everywhere that there is a lot of executive coaching courses and public speaking skills courses and mm, lots of tools that for someone who simply wants to mm, scale their public speaking capacity, but doesn't have an emotional problem such as anxiety, that is actually your body doing something that you don't want it to do when you are socially interacting, public speaking, presenting. My clients do even suffer when they know they are going to go to a dinner sometimes and there will be someone that they haven't met yet. They feel like it's horrible inside them. So the thing is that those courses don't work for everyone because the thing that makes these executives um, or the thing that makes you suffer from this severe flight, uh, fight or flight response when you're public speaking or presenting, it's a wound, it's a trauma, it's an encoded way of seeing reality, a filter that was programmed and embedded in your nervous system way back in your life. But what happens? Your brain does something that is amazing and it does it for us like in, in an immense like intelligence and is that it suppresses the cognitive memory. So many people will not remember the episode or the or the chain of episodes that caused that wound or that trauma as in, uh, as in a script, as in a place, people, an event that happens that you can describe. That memory 
is gone, is, is down in the unconscious, below the conscious threshold. But what your body remembers is how you felt. And then, because we are 24-7 receiving uh, inputs from the environment, anytime you receive an input from the environment through your senses, that is similar to the inputs you had when you learn to be afraid of something, anything, then that wound will be reactivated and you will recreate, your body will recreate the same feeling, the same symptoms, the same thing that you felt, the same fear once and over and over and over again. Mm. And there is something that I, I heard from, I think that it was Dr. Gabor Mate or someone else that is like deep into this trauma and wounds um, spectrum, let's say. He said something like your brain, it seems that your brain keeps on bringing the pattern to see if finally this time you fix it. To finally, if, if you this time finally bring some healing to, the, to this. So no wonder why it's called the alarm system, right? It's an alarm. What happens when your alarm is dysregulated is that it becomes like the alarm of your apartment. That whether you're born in the stake or your house is actually on fire, it will go off anyway. Ooh, right? right. It doesn't know the difference. And this is what happening, that what's happening with public speaking anxiety that, by the way, not only happens when public speaking, it happens in airplanes, in crowded elevators, in dinners or family gatherings or at any place or social setting where you feel you are going to be at the spotlight, even with something as simple as someone asking you something. Yeah. I hope it um, it's 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 a really interesting it's a really interesting topic because like you said earlier with executives you you see these people in like suits and ties and make a lot of money you know they're in very senior positions and you you just assume that they've got their shit together basically and you know they don't have anxiety. They they can step on stage in front of, you know, 10,000 people and give a talk um, or, you know, lead a board meeting completely flawlessly when, you know, the reality is they are human. And of course they, yeah. they have human emotions like everyone else. Um, so it, it, it is always, I think it's, I think it's good to, to remember that, you know, even top executive CEOs, those type of people, uh, just because they're successful, that it doesn't mean that they don't have the same anxiety that you have for, you know, doing karaoke at a bar. You know, it's the same. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing. I remember speaking to one of my friends um, a few years ago. He was in the army, and uh, he was training to go to where was it, Iraq or Afghanistan or something. Um, and okay. I remember saying to him, because he, he left the army and he was he was going to go into like an office job for like his first ever office job. And I remember saying to him like, oh, now you've done, um, you know, all these terrifying things and stressful things. I'm sure like, you know, making a cold call, for example, is going to be 
easy for you. I'm sure nothing phases you. And he said to me, like, no, I'm so scared of making a cold call or like doing a meeting. Like office work actually terrifies me. So I always found that yeah. that interesting. Um, so there isn't really like in your experience, I suppose just because you're scared, just because you can do something supposedly stressful, uh, like step out in front of 50,000 people, it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, going for, uh, you know, making a cold call or, um, doing normal things that people get anxious about in everyday life. It doesn't necessarily mean just cause you can do this, you can do this, right? Yeah. So what happens is, is very interesting. And it's, it's a good story about your friend because here is not about if you are scared of doing things or you're scared of certain things because they are easy or not easy, or because they are, they look big here, but they look small there. It's about familiarity. So obviously your friend, he was like going to war and, you know, being at service, probably risking his life and doing stuff that for most of us that are not in the army is pretty scary. And you gotta be like pretty tough and have like these nerves of steel. But then he was petrified and he was like panicking about going in an office job because mm. what he was gonna um, face in the office job was absolutely unfamiliar to him, unfamiliar to him. So basically anxiety is that alarm that is telling you that you are doing something your nervous system is not familiar with, even if what you want to do is positive, is beneficial for you. I'll tell you what happened after I had to drink to sing to now doing corporate workshops, talking in front of 50, 100 people with no problem. And it's not about, ah, oh, it became familiar to speak in public. That's not what it needed to get familiar in my nervous system. What I needed to make familiar was to be myself. When you have a wound, for example, of not being able to be authentic, when you got a direct or indirect message that being yourself, making your own choices, having different preferences to what the rules were in your family or your social group or your religion, community, is not safe because that upsets people, disappoint the adults, um, you get criticized or you get um, emotionally abandoned or physically abandoned. Then when you have to step up to public speak, to sing, to perform, to you got to be yourself, right? It's a, it's a moment where you are putting out yourself. And if your nervous system learned, hey, 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 hold on, being yourself is not safe. You remember? Remember that if you are yourself, your love gets taken away. You remember that if you are yourself, you get criticized or you get punished. You remember? So what it needs to get familiar is the emotion and the belief. So your nervous system needs to feel that being yourself is now familiar and is now safe, that there is no such consequences like the ones felt like that in the past. And the other thing is that the stress system, the stress system, which is also what manages anxiety, is a generalized system inside us. 
the stress system doesn't know if you are like if, if for example a person is has a phobia of um snakes the stress system doesn't know if it's a tiny baby snake or if it's a massive boa or if the mm. snake is behind a glass in a zoo or if the snake is just crawling behind your your feet or something like that the stress system our anxiety system which is basically comes from the limbic brain is a generalized thing the associations are general that's why you can have system, um, symptoms of anxiety and you can have this massive dysregulation in certain situations when the initial sensitizing event which is called the moment or the moments when you first learn to be afraid of something insecure of something um ashamed of something have nothing to do with public speaking for example i have had clients that when we go to to we always explore it's an investigation process is investigating inside their mind and here is where my careers probably are connected we investigate and we dig deep to find the initial sensitizing event or the initial the initial ones which is when and why your mind learned to be afraid or ashamed of certain thing and then i will give you examples i'll give you examples of um one female executive i'm going to give you the example of of that female executive mm. she was sabotaging her career she had to do some exams and pass some tests apart from doing her job right to climb the ladder where she was at her job and then when when i hypnotized her and we went through an emotional bridge we went to rescue the memory where your mind thinks you learned that she learned that she told me that she has forgotten that memory which was her parents from russia uh, with the war and everything they needed to move out of the town where they used to live and she has been put in a different school with a different system of education and she was behind everyone else so when she was made to read or to talk in front of their classmates she was made fun of and she was made felt by the teacher as if making a mistake in what she was reading was um um like doing something bad like if it was a massive mistake so she almost got punished for that error so she developed this fear of making mistakes and this rush for perfectionism and this incapacity of trusting anything she was deciding and anything she was doing to actually get better at what she was doing i've had other clients who remember for example um being hyper criticized and here is not about judging parents because they are also humans who are programmable and they are the product of their environment and their upbringing but it's about recognizing that we are programmable so i have had clients i have had one in specific who remember being always criticized but he's that in terms of he his dad never liked his friends his dad never liked what he wanted to choose to wear so he was always uh, forced to wear what his dad wanted him to wear um right. 
his dad never said, for example, oh, well done. Even if he did it, what he thought it was perfect, there was always an um, indirect message of, oh, that's okay, but you could have done better. Or comparison with cousins or the neighbor's son. Those things create a narrative when you are very young that uh, it's not about, oh, you know, my dad is like that because they, he had a tough upbringing. That's what you think now when you are an adult. When you are 10, 9, 7, 6, your brain doesn't have the capacity, so you don't stop loving your parent. You don't have capacity of judging your parent in any way. You stop loving yourself. And all the narrative that forms around that emotionally is It's my fault. I deserve it. There is something wrong with me. I'm the problem. It's a self-centered narrative. And that's why the limiting beliefs, we, we hear about limiting beliefs everywhere in the media, right? In social media. Very little people know what limiting beliefs actually are. It's those beliefs that form there. When your narrative could only be self-centered and these painful things happen to you. Right. Okay. Sorry, when you say the narratives can only be self-centered, so so because my understanding of limiting beliefs is basically stuff that you tell yourself. You you well, you basically say, "I can't do that. I can't be a millionaire," you know, or "I can't run my own business," or "I can't do the best man speech. I'm just not good enough." That sort of stuff, or or, or is it like is it deeper than that? It is deeper than that. It is uh, the, I can do this, I can do that, is the narrative that your brain puts in the forefront of your head, of your brain, basically, to try and make sense of those feelings, right? Your brain needs mm. a narrative to, to make sense of all this. But this is what people don't know about limiting beliefs. Not everyone has a self-talk of negative things like, I can't do this, I can't do the best man speech, or I can't public speak, or I'm terrible at this, or I'm terrible at that. Yes, those are the byproduct of limiting beliefs. But the real limiting beliefs, the ones that hold you back, that make you say those things, is those emotional codes that are embedded inside you that probably you don't know that say everything about, I'm not worthy. I have a problem, I'm fundamentally broken. Or when you feel unlovable, when you unconsciously have a pattern that you haven't figured out what it is, but you always do certain thing in a way that doesn't make you happy, but you also don't know how to change it because you don't know where it comes from. So you create the narrative. Oh, no, I can't put this puzzle together. You know, I have been trying to be puzzles for trying to to do puzzles for 15 years and i just can't because i'm just bad at it that's the narrative that the limiting beliefs makes you form but the true limiting beliefs the limitations are under the consciousness in the unconscious those emotional programs that make you feel in certain way about yourself mm because of the experiences that other exposed you to when you were just learning the world. Yeah. No, I think I I think I get it now. So 
a few things I want to I want to speak to you about, like in my in my world, in the sales world, in the recruitment world. Um, and I'm sure you know, obviously dealing with executives and in the business world, you probably come across this quite a lot. So, if someone's listening to this now, because this is obviously a very common problem, but if someone's listening to this now and they have really bad, like either cold call anxiety, uh, so they get really nervous yeah. before they make a cold call to a business, or um, you know, a lot of people, you see a lot of TikTok memes about this, like getting really nervous before a, a Microsoft Teams or Google Meet meeting um, with, with like a, yeah. a new prospect, you know, a new, a new client. What advice would you give people listening now to help them, you know, deal with that anxiety um, and even just like reduce it by 20% sort of thing? Yeah. Absolutely. So basically, yeah, the, the, the full, the full, uh, answer and the full, let's say fixing of that problem is obviously doing the deep work and with an expert. But the thing is that people try to manage that anxiety with logical thinking. It's okay. I can do this. And that doesn't work because the problem again is not logical. It's emotional. If you have a fear of cold calling, and that's holding you back, making you lose, lose time of your day, avoiding that that's actually holding you back from making the many calls that you need to make because recruitment is a numbers game, right? So it's, it's actually affecting your career and your, your, your performance. What you need to understand is that managing that alarm system, system dysregulation is about addressing your body. The unconscious mind lives in the body. That's why you experience anxiety. If you didn't have a body, you wouldn't know how it is to experience anxiety. So one thing that works really well is do some rapid tapping, rapid tapping. But here is the thing. The protocol is not just tapping, you know, like in this long way or is name the feeling, sit with the feeling and give it a name. Is it anxiety? Is it fear to you? Does it have a person's name? It's called James. It's called, call it, like give it a name. Now, the second part is measure, measure the subjective stress units. What does it mean? This is just fancy words for how much do you feel this anxiety or fear from one to 10, one being the lowest, 10 being the highest. Let's say your number is seven, because that's what came to your mind is you who's experiencing. So the number only needs to make sense to you. Once you have that number, write the name of the feeling. Once you have that number, write it down and start tapping the top of your head, the top of your head like this, like if you were a little doing a little bit of a cocoon, oh. tap the, yeah, tap the, the, the top of your head. And just with intention, repeat that you are letting go, that you are choosing letting go of that anxiety. Another good place to tap is off-center your collarbone. What you are doing with this, you are actually addressing your body and your um, energy meridians. So hypnosis is not just about closing your eyes and being. Hypnosis is an effective way of communicating with your unconscious mind. So tap, 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 do maybe half a dozen, half a dozen, half a dozen, half, do maybe 30 seconds, 60 seconds of this tapping, repeat with intention, 
that you are letting go of this feeling, that you choose to let go of this feeling. Don't say, I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be fear, afraid because that doesn't work. It needs to be in the positive. I choose to let go of this anxiety. I decide to let go of this anxiety. I let go of this anxiety. It is safe to let go of this fear. The collarbone. Yeah. Right. There is, there is much more points, but that's like an entire thing. But those two points are super effective. And then the intention. One of the key things for change work through accessing the unconscious mind is the intention. It's the same when you are going to do a call and you have an intention before you make the call, right? You are aiming somewhere. It's an intention and you feel it. If you just call call without an intention, where do you think the call is going to go? Nowhere. So without intention addressing the unconscious mind, the unconscious mind doesn't know what is it that needs to be reorganized, rewritten, reframed. And another, another advice that sounds very basic, but um, everyone can do it. And, and I will explain you why it works is control your breathing. Do control breathing before doing calls. Why? Breath is the door that connects the conscious with the unconscious. Breathing is the only thing that you can do both consciously and unconsciously. If you don't put your attention in your breath, you breathe anyway, unconsciously, right? Managed yeah. by your unconscious mind. But if you want to do it deliberately, you can do it. And the reason why is because breath is the open gate to change your state. So when you are anxious before doing a cold call, you are in a state of anxiousness. That's not the state you need for the call. Or if you just had a fight with your partner and then you need to make a call two minutes later. And I know recruiters are really good at just brushing it off, but wouldn't it be better to do the call in a better state, in a more calm state? Because as much as you pretend on the call that this didn't happen two minutes ago, the fight, there is a lot that we communi communicate unconsciously through our tone of voice, through the pace of our words, through the words that we say. People can tell on the phone if you are easy or uneasy. People can tell in a meeting if you're anxious or not. Actually, our systems as humans, our respiratory system and our cardiovascular system match when we have interactions. So if you're anxious and your heart rate is high, my heart rate will go high after two minutes of mm. interaction through a system called external reception. We all have it. It's like an antenna. So why is it important that even though you think that you can pretend to be con um, confident, right? Or that you can put a lot of effort to, to act like something that you are not really feeling. Why is it important that you actually work in the base of making that real inside you is because unconsciously, unconsciously, you are still projecting the real feeling that you're having inside. And the other person picks it up and also consciously maybe don't know what it is, but they do pick it up. They leave you and they feel, oh, why do I feel like agitated or tired or like, was he okay? And you don't know mm. why, but you are like, was this person okay? Is that, is that antenna? picks up all the bits 
all the unconscious bits. Our conscious mind can only process five, seven, or nine bits of information at a given moment. The conscious mind, the logical, strategic mind. The unconscious mind is processing around four billion bits of information per minute. It's like right now you're talking to me and until I don't say this, tell me for how long you you were unaware of this. How does your t-shirt feel in your skin? I wasn't aware of it at all. It's ha- but it's happening. It's impossible mm. that your skin is not feeling it. But it goes out of your awareness, conscious awareness, because your conscious mind is a tiny little bit in your brain above your eyebrow that can only process five, seven, or nine, bit, nine bits of information at a given time. There is lots more that you're experiencing at a given moment and all that is entering straight to you, but you don't need it in your conscious awareness. Yeah. For example, the temperature of the air in the room where you are at. You're not thinking of that until I don't mention it. How does your watch feels on your wrist? How does your pinky toe of your left foot? (laughs) You are not. All these things, right? The background noises. Um, and many other things that we are not able to grasp. That's why in your, in your world, if there is recruiters and, and also candidates who are afraid of this on the spot thing, which is making a cold call, a, a cold call, um, pitching, pitching a client, pitching a recruiter or pitching the client or the company you're going to work for, all that, and you feel that you feel truly out of control, remember that there is no logical thinking that's going to help you to resolve that, that you need to address your body because your unconscious mind lives in your body. So Mm. breathing is an excellent way, or basically I think that's the starting point of changing your state. If you breathe differently, your posture will readjust. And then when your posture re- readjust, you suddenly start making all the kind of chemicals that make you feel calmer or confident. Now, everyone feels nerves. Making a call to someone you have never spoken to is awful anyway. It's supposed to be because we all have um an essential need, which is the need for acceptance and belonging. And every time we approach someone that we don't know, we are risking not belonging. And because our brain really haven't evolved that much Mm. in the caveman era, not belonging to your tribe meant dying. You couldn't hunt and make the fire and look after the, on your own, no way. So it does, it does still feel like nervousness and all, but then what happens when your anxiety and nervous system are dysregulated, your threshold of stress is like, imagine that the threshold is like a box where your um, emotions are able to navigate safely. And then every time you get trauma wound, the threshold closes, closes, it becomes narrower, lower, lower, lower. So when an event or a kind of nerves that are kind of normal and other people can handle very well, like public 
speaking or cold calling or interviewing or getting interviewed anxiety nerves um then you have no capacity so the feeling overflows the stress threshold and that's when your body becomes out of control and then your thoughts become out of control because 95 of your thoughts are automatic and they they are generated by how your body is feeling what is in your unconscious mind mm. so tapping can i ask you a question reading. yeah so um, you were just talking about the the stress threshold, and when you get trauma, it 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 gets smaller and smaller. Um, and uh, yeah, that uh, that resonated with me because um, I I had some trauma a few years ago, and I went for like a grieving process. So I, I had therapy and that sort of stuff. And one one thing someone said to me was, um, uh, it was how was it described to me? So basically the uh like for example when someone dies you have like yep. um it was something like you have like a you, you've sort of been like stabbed right by like a big shard of glass yeah and the shard of glass slowly gets removed over time i.e you know you slowly grieve um process your grief but there's like little yep. shards that remain and um you then become or people people usually become more empathetic and they become quicker to react uh, emotionally to things like for example if someone else dies or someone else is ill they're more emotional now yeah. because they've already lost someone than they were before so with that threshold like dropping the more trauma you go through are you able to like is is that what you do sort of thing like you you expand the threshold again so you're able to cope with more or it, it is it an yeah. irreversible process no it is absolutely reverse it's, it's absolutely reversible and that's what all this is about so in the case of what you were telling me uh which is what happens with uh, when thankfully you went to therapy and you were able to process your grief in a more healthy way. Let's not confuse here, uh, not feeling like this is not about not feeling sad or not feeling af afraid of certain events. Like if you lose someone, you are supposed to be sad. Like the, the opposite, trying to be okay when something like that happens produces great trauma, produces you not being able to process natural emotions and then those emotions trapped in you produce illness and all sorts of stuff. But then uh, I don't know if you have heard about a complicated grief, which is when it has happened already one, two years, three years, and people are not able to function normally after the loss of someone. That's a different story. And that is trauma. Because basically your nervous system doesn't, doesn't find safe place again after the loss. So anything that implies trauma is that you suffer an event or a series of events, and then your nervous system couldn't go back to normal regulation again at all. It kept on feeling, it got stuck in that state. That's what makes the threshold narrower. So when, when you change through hypnosis, through accessing the emotional circuitry, and you rewrite it. It's like a computer program we were talking the other day, remember? Mm. 
So you, you get inside the hardware, which is the computer, which is your body, and look for the coding of the program and find the code that doesn't let the program run as it's supposed to. You rewrite it, reinstall the program so it runs as it's supposed to run. The threshold immediately expands again because with the new unconscious belief, yeah, with the new unconscious belief, which is your, you feeling safe in situations where you didn't feel safe before, the capacity of handling stress just grows back, right? Mm. And uh, it's absolutely reversible, both doing mental work through, hip through hypnosis, but also putting your body, your unconscious mind, through deliberate stress, exercise, cold showers, intermittent cold showers, anything that causes deliberate stress, yoga, resistance training like Pilates, like uh, moments where you put or situations where you put your body under, under a certain level of stress and you need to breathe in the discomfort. So you are retraining your nervous system to be okay with certain level of discomfort. What also allows the threshold to go from narrow to expand it again? Deliberate, deliberate relaxation. We have become so bad at truly taking moments of pure relaxation, not with the phone, playing a game or with social media. It's literally giving your body rest. And this not only happens when we are sleeping. There is a protocol that I teach my clients and that they go away with an audio, which is basically the um, rest and reset, I call it. And it's just a body scanning in certain way where you produce a level of rest in your system that is very similar to taking a nap. So your nervous system kind of rebounds, resets. Mm. Because we need to be able to, stress is necessary for us to move. We cannot like, stress is, is we need it to live. Like this thing that eliminate all stress. No, we are designed to be able to stress, adapt, move on, like adapt, resolve, and then relax again. Stress, adapt, move on, relax again. But when it becomes a problem, when you stress, you maladapt, you stress again, you maladapt, you stress again, you maladapt, and you never rest. And then because you are numbing that uh, chronic stress, uh, then this all day in the phone, in the phone. Yeah. And there, there are so many things that are happening in your, in your body when you are in the phone that cause anxiety. So what you are using to numb that stress instead of learning how to manage it is actually producing more anxiety. Narrow vision, typical thing that happens when you enter the fight or flight response. Narrow vision into a screen. So you are doing it deliberately to you, imagine, unnecessarily, all day. Um, the light in the evening, for example, when we are supposed to wind down from artificial light or very clear light produces alertness when you are supposed to rest, when you're supposed to wind down and to switch off. And this position 
This protective position is a position of the opposite of confidence and it's a posi body position that tells your body that you are sad and that you need to protect your heart from something painful. So that's when the cycle is difficult to break and when people consult someone like me because they are using certain things to numb the stress they are not they are not fully conscious of but those numbing strategies or coping mechanisms are actually producing more of the same or other problems right so with um with phones specifically because this is something that i'm personally trying to sort out myself i'm trying to I'm trying to make a conscious effort and I fail some days and I'm okay. Some others I'm trying to make a conscious effort of like having a proper shutdown period. So from like seven o'clock to 10, I'm trying and I didn't do it last night, but I'm trying not to eat. I'm trying um, to yeah. have as little light on as possible and certainly not go on my phone and scroll on Reddit for 45 minutes straight, which is what I did last night, um, which is always awful. And I don't know why I do it, but it's how important is it then? And I suppose, cause we all know, you know, we all know our phones are bad for us. We all know social media is bad for us. Scrolling is bad for us, especially early in the morning and late at night. Like everyone like knows that we still do it though. And for me, I think it's yeah, like, yeah, I, I think it's personally people people know it's bad, but they don't really understand the ins and out of what's actually happening and and how it's actually affecting us, how it's causing us depression, how it's causing us anxiety. Um like I I had a I think it was a few weeks ago. So I was you know, you, you see all this kind of stuff on TikTok and Instagram, you know, turn your phone off, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, most people just don't listen and they just continue living their lives i decided yeah. to do it like one night i didn't i didn't eat i didn't go on my phone and i woke up in the morning and i struggle with um getting good quality sleep i always wake up tired and it's probably because of stress but i had like one day where i woke up and i felt like 60 percent better and i was like oh my god there is actually something to this so how yeah. important is it then to have these shutdown periods and how important is it to just have generally moments where there's no input? You're not reading anything, you're not on your phone, you've not got it's lights or you're important. doing emails or stuff. It's extremely important for several reasons. Uh, first of all, obviously for quality of sleep, but also is because humans, we are learning every day. We are learning with everything we are doing. Right. And for example, with my clients, when we are doing change work, when we are working one on one, this is one of the things that I advise. I mean, everyone is free to do whatever, but if they want to take full advantage of what we are doing, changes in your brain. So the changes that we do on a session, or for example, when you wrote something or you did something new or you practice an instrument. The learning process, which is the change in the matter, which is the brain after the mental process of that learning happens in the periods of rest and while you are sleeping. So if you're having bad sleep, if you are not resting during the day and having certain periods to stop all this input, 
you're basically making yourself dumb. I'm sorry to say it like this, but you are denying yourself the right for development and growth through learning. If that's not enough reason, I don't know what it is. Also, what I was telling you about the screens and small screens like our phones, they narrow our vision, they they mess up with our, our posture, like there is no posture of power and confidence and wakeness anymore through being on a phone like this. Um, and also when you eat in the evening and you watch your phone and screens and all that, you're giving your brain a signal to do the opposite than what's the natural thing to do as a human, which is turn down the lights, probably read a book with a small lamp and just get sleepy and go to sleep. And when you do that, you're telling your body there is a need to be alert, anxious. So then you don't, you don't achieve that deep state of sleeping. You don't go through the entire cycle. You don't go into the REM, into the REM <clears throat> periods, which is when the changes are made in your brain. And then obviously your brain cannot dec declutter. You wake up feeling terrible and you wake up and straight away you start having the, the thoughts of the problems of the previous day. It's more than ever. Um, so it is very important that we relearn in this society, in this, in this um, current society that we, we have created and in this system of living, uh, that we relearn to, to reset and to rest. It's very important. It's very important. Even for your physical yeah. health. Like body and mind are not disconnected. Your unconscious mind lives in your body. So, and one of the things as well that I have noticed, for example, with my clients with this public speaking, social awkwardness, all this on the spot anxiety, is that generally they are people because of the nature of the high stakes role they are at. They are people who forgot how to relax. Their system absolutely forgot how to do that. And they, mm. again, and they build this belief of the ones that are kind of cognitive and conscious. I can't relax. I don't have time for it. I need to be on 24 seven. And then the system collapses. And then, and then your body says like, sorry, I can't do it anymore. So I will give you a panic attack. So I will give you flu every two weeks. So I will give you, I don't know, so many things. Yeah. If you don't stop yeah. reasonably during your day, your body will make sure that you stop. Yeah, you're not Superman, right? And as much as you want to think it, yeah. like you're going to just, the longer you prolong it, obviously you end up with burnout or you're getting ill or whatever, like you said. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's definitely something that, you know, more and more people are, are realizing that a lot of our problems come from, you know, a lot, a lot, I think a lot of people's problems, mental health problems is coming from the fact that we're always on and we thought yeah. this, I me I remember like, I don't know how old you are, but I remember when uh, these first came out and everyone was talking about smartphones and stuff in the sort of mid to late 2000s, 
that it was going to give us freedom and you know we'd be able to you know have more time but actually what's happened is we've got less time and we feel obligated especially if you're like especially if you're like entrepreneurial or if you're very driven ambitious person or maybe obsessive um you know you you feel like oh i could be productive all all the time so uh, i'll check my emails at 9 45 while i'm in bed and something you mentioned yeah. as well um which actually happened to me this morning because i had a uh I was on my phone late last night i woke up this morning so literally eyes open seven o'clock in the morning and my brain like kicked into gear and i started stressing about something that literally i was thinking about last night it was like my brain just put yeah. it on pause and then press play when i woke up yeah yeah, one of the things that I, I work with my clients on is it is extremely important to, when you actually suffer with anxiety symptoms that severe, like when it affects your performance, your life, the way you want to live, it's so important to get into a regulated state before you start working. So the mornings that you wake up like today is when you need it the most. That means you're dysregulated. The signs mm. of that is thoughts from the previous day with a problem. Obviously, if you're having a bad problem, you are meant to think of it first thing as soon as you open the eyes. You're human. Again, this is not about feeling happy and feeling optimistic all the time. That doesn't exist. But if this is your daily life, if this is your day to day without a stop, and if you, for example, you're not hungry at all as soon as you wake up or just minutes after, that means you woke up stressed already. That means you woke up in a state of alertness already. So there is, there is various things to do. Sometimes I send some like very small audios to my clients. So it's an audio that as soon as they open their eyes, they sit in bed. They put their headphones and it's 10 to 15 minutes and that sets them for the day. Um, yeah, there are so many things and every person has different needs and obviously interventions are personalized, but basically, yes, it's all about getting back your system to healthy regulation, your nervous system, your brain through your mind uh, by reprogramming those beliefs, reprogramming those all wounds and emotional memories that created those parts of you that are acting, thinking, and feeling in ways that you don't like it anymore and is not beneficial. And through learning on the spot tools for busy people as well, because I've heard on the internet, all this advice, sit and meditate for 30 minutes. This is, this is probably the, the worst advice you can give a person who is anxious and hardwired. That creates more frustration. Also, how would you think that every CEO in planet Earth or every C-suite has 30 minutes in the morning to sit and meditate? No way. But then when they are going to publicly speak, they feel anxious and they don't have a tool to regulate their body. So there is a lot of generic advice out there that it can work. Again, it's a spectrum. It can work for the lower spectrums. It can work for some people. Um, but, but busy people, executives and busy people in general, and if, 
nowadays everyone is a busy person, right? Busy people need deep interventions of change where you go under hypnosis and you do a protocol that generates an emotional circuitry change, basically. A couple of tools that you don't need to take hours of your day doing a self-care routine. No one has time for that. Also, that doesn't work. For It works for other things, but not for rewiring your anxiety, basically. Tools that you can use on the spot. So I have a talk in five minutes. What do I do with my body and my mind? Right? I, I teach my clients some a small protocol that they, as, after they do it with me in a long session, I teach them the short version, which is called memory reconsolidation. So basically... Um, it's based on the, on the fact that your remembering self, your, your past self, your present self and your future self live in the now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, your past self is basically reflecting his beliefs into the present. Like all what you learn is what, how you are acting and thinking today and also the way you see the possibilities of the future. So. For you to live in the present, the way you want to live, that only needs to make sense to you again, is how you want to feel, who you want to be. How would you like to act, think, uh, believe, um, feel? Your, your remembering self, your past self, needs a narrative of safety and happiness and whatever it is that what you want, right? So we do a protocol called memory reconsolidation. So basically is something that it sounds like magic because it is like magic. It's a powerful protocol where we go into the unconscious in a deep state of trance and we install a memory of a future event that hasn't happened yet. But then that emotion that you managed to create during the session gets embedded in your nervous system the same way the belief and the emotion of when you were mocked at school got embedded in your nervous system and gave you public speaking anxiety. We do it, but the other way around. Because that's the power of the mind. The mind is powerful towards the disempowering side and towards the power inside. So busy people need tools that they can use on the spot. What do I do once I feel that it's a feeling. I don't know if you have ever had panic attacks. I have. There is something that you feel, well, people who haven't experienced it don't understand this, but people who have, they understand that there is one second before you're going to have a panic attack, you know it's coming. Something happens in your body that you know is coming. People need to know what to do there. People don't need to be told, go and meditate 30 minutes with a panic attack. Are you, mm. are you serious? Like, no way, no way anyone can do that. Breathe deeply while you're having a panic attack. Come on. Your automatic nervous system is so excited and so dysregulated that you feel that you can't breathe. So telling people to breathe deeply when they're having a panic attack, for example, is the worst advice ever because people are going to start hyperventilating. It's about tools and 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 mental tools and the power of imagination and thought in certain way that will provoke a different state in your body where your unconscious mind lives. So 
yeah, it is basically about that. Yeah. Awesome. That's, yeah, so much to... I've, le- I've learned <laughs> so much over the one. last <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, no, definitely. Um, the only other thing I wanted to ask you before we, before we end this is yep. something we discussed before um, about ethical persuasion and influencing. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very big um, subject. But basically from the unconscious mind, which is where I, my playground, let's say. Um, persuasion and persuasion and leading and influencing is pretty much an unconscious process like effective influence and and persuasion is an unconscious process in which sense when you are talking to a client you're pitching for example your services even though you are talking to a company there is a human right behind the phone or behind zoom and there is unconscious ways of getting that person to lower the critical faculty, which is like the bouncer outside the nightclub, right? That kind of filter information, which is what we do in hypnosis to uh, access the unconscious, to access the nightclub without the bouncer, bouncer stopping us. Mm. There are several ways to do that when you are selling, persuading, influencing for leaders, for salespeople like you, and is what you do with your body and the biofeedback loop and how you manage it when the other person is in the call with you, right? Ways of building rapport for, um, for higher influence, for higher suggestibility in the other person of what you are saying or trying to sell to them is again, your breathing. Match the person's breathing consciously. Obviously, don't be too obvious. Don't be acting like a weird in a call, please. Like these things are supposed to be done subtly. Blink. Blink with the per- when the person blinks. If I do this and you do that three seconds later with your other hand, you're mirroring me. It's called mirroring and leading. Once you mirror a person in certain ways, for example, if you say, say anything that you would say in a call, just say something. Hi, my name's David. Oh, your name is David. I just repeated the last three words that you said. Yeah. But if you said, yeah. for example, yeah, so I'm going to send you the, or if the other person in the line, yes, David, please send me the offer or please send me the proposal to my email and I will review it tomorrow. Before you reply to that, you would say, great, you will review it tomorrow. Rapport point, rapport point. And the person will not really notice. Use this ethically, please. So breathing, breathing pace, blinking, taking on different gestures, but doing them naturally how you would do them, but using them. There is something called a yes set. You can start a call by asking someone, 
questions that are obvious, they are going to answer yes. Because this is a sales technique, actually. When a person has mm. said yes three or four times, it's very difficult for them to say no the fourth time when you put out the offer or whatever you are selling. So for example, oh, so you could tell me, oh, so you are in Abu Dhabi. Yes, yes. And oh, it's very sunny there, right? Yeah, right. You're right. And another thing. And did you find the link of this call like easily? Yeah, yeah, it was super easy. You got three yeses there. You develop the call. The brain of that person is running in a pattern already. Most probably when you offer, if you are offering value, obviously, that person is going to be super receptive and will probably say yes as well. So, yeah. What do you think of um, the of asking for, to getting a no instead? Because something that's really popular in the sales community at the moment is because um, for years people have been going for yeses. And that's how I was taught as well. But something that's really popular at the moment, and I don't know if you've read Never Split the Difference, the book. Yep. Then I go, yeah, cool. So he obviously talks about he, the way FBI negotiate is they go for no's instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you're, you're bit, rather than get them to physically say yes, you're, so, so you, you would say like, um, are you against you know, speaking again? Rather mm-hmm. than saying, do you want to speak again? Are you against speaking again? But um, if you remember... Say, no, no, I'm example, not against it. Yeah, exactly. But if you remember, for example, uh, never split the difference, how he explains the getting the no, getting the no is by either trying to mind read the person when you know that what you're saying about them is not what they are probably going for, what they are feeling or thinking, right? Mm. or you can actually tell someone that you know they don't want to do something. For example, in the past, I used to see teenagers and kids, which I stopped. Uh, and once I had one teenager in my, in, in my session, and he was there because his mom wanted him to be there, not because he wanted to. And the only way that I found to break the ice with this teenager was telling him, I know you don't want to be here, don't you? And he and arms down. So absolutely, it is getting a no, but it's getting a no, but in a way you are matching that no. Now, when you get a no in a sales, use this is another subject that is super big. I don't think we can cover it here. Using language to clarify language. So when a person say, normally people don't say no like this. No, David, no. People are going to say objections, right? I need to Mm. think about it. I need to discuss it with this other person. Or um, I have this other thing that is also a possibility. So I will like kind of people want to go away. So for example, if they say, I'm not entirely sure of the system of the offer, clarify language instead of hanging up the, the call. Say, what exactly? What exactly are not, you are not sure about the system or what exact part of the system do you feel you are not sure about? The person will have to elaborate. And if it's really an objection for the sake of an objection, then the person will can, if you ask and ask questions to clarify, what does it mean? 
Uh, I don't know what they are going to think. Who are they? Language to clarify language. Because when a person is kind of tricking you with fake objections, it's very difficult to maintain a narrative and several answers through this language to mm. clarify language. But when a person truly has an objection because they feel that way, even if you don't make the sale, you will learn a lot about why this person feel that way. Because they are going to be honest, right? What is it in your offer that doesn't make them feel comfortable saying yes? And that might be the most valuable feedback that you will get to make yeah. your next offer or your next sale. So using language to clarify language. And there is a whole system in neurolinguistic programming about clean language to clarify language, where you can actually dig deep in what people really mean when they say what they say. Yeah. Yeah. NLP is um, becoming really popular in sales with a lot of trainers I follow. Like, um, there's a couple you might follow as well. Uh, Benjamin Dennehy's quite a big one uh, on LinkedIn. Yeah. He's um, There's a few guys as well, like Zach Thompson um, at Wham. They they use a lot of these sort of methods, um, which is really interesting. But yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And you breaking it down as well and making it relevant to, um, you know, salespeople, because I think a lot of people will find that really, um, really actionable and useful because one of the main questions I get asked as a BD coach is, um, mm -hmm. you know, how do I handle this objection? And it's, it's more about, for me, it's, it's always been more about not having a canned response or a scripted response, but, you know, going deeper and, and having those questioning yeah, strategies. Yeah. yeah. And there will be so, times where someone will give you an objection and you will you will kind of have to accept it, right? There is moments in where you cannot really push the sale. There is moments where, I don't know, maybe that client turns out was not your client. And then you will have to feel okay with that. But the more you feel mm. okay with that, which is the more you feel okay with rejection and the meaning, the emotional meaning of rejection that you have inside you, then the more you will find your ideal client, the people who really yeah. who will really benefit from your solution, right? Hypnosis and NLP is just effective ways of communicating with your deeper self. And that works for the outside and for other people as well. Because selling is, yeah. is a psychological loop between two parties, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is the thing. And, and this is the more I've, I've learned about sales over the last 10 years, it's, it is basically the art of human, human communication. And, um, 100%. a lot of people think it's just reading a script or whatever, but it's so much deeper than that. And, and like you said as well, you know, um, a lot of prospecting, a lot of sales is actually trying to find out whether or not, you know, they're, well, first of all, if, if they're even a suitable client for you. And then, like you said, being able to put yourself in a situation where you see the rejection as a good thing, like, um, one of my friends has got a book coming out literally, I think today, actually, um, Kevin yeah. Casey, he's got a book called unselling. So it's all about, um, it's all about disqualifying rather than qualifying. It's all about, um, trying to almost push people away in a low pressure way. And then if they are interested, if they are genuinely interested, they're actually pushed back. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's, uh, 
that that's it's, it, I think it's a much better concept and it's far more comfortable for people to do than the typical sort of old school way of selling, um, you know, pressure selling, Wolf of Wall Street style humans, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, humans don't like to be told what to do. That's not a mm. way of influencing anyone. The more you tell someone what to do directly, the more you build resistance. hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's the same. Look, sales and the work I do, change work, is the same in one sense. I'm selling the unconscious mind of a person a different meaning of life events. But I cannot bully it. I cannot accuse it. The unconscious doesn't like that. I cannot force my opinion or what I think that person should do into the unconscious of that person. I need to investigate, understand what it is, what's the role of the part that's doing anxiety in that person, and then offer it an alternative work in the life of that person to make them feel protected without the nasty feelings of anxiety. For example, sales, sales is understanding, sales is questioning, sales is calibrating, calibrate the face of the person if you have them in Zoom. I have to calibrate my clients all the time during the session. I see how their eyes are moving, how their eyebrows are moving, the tone of the muscles of the face to see in which level of trance they are at, their shoulders, the, like so many things. If you calibrate people, which is observing attentively with intention, or if you listen with intention, the voice of a person you are trying to sell to, that's calibrating. Your unconscious, your inner wisdom will tell you what to do if you are doing that with attention. Mm. It's built in us. It's just the modern society has kind of pulled us out from that connection with ourselves, with that inner intelligence that we all have. But yeah, and, and selling is... It's emotional. It's 100% emotional. Yes, it's good to learn skills. It's good to learn language patterns. It's good to know that when you tell someone something and then you put a because and you give them a reason whether it has something to do with what you told them or not, they are most likely to do it because the brain is most likely to do something with a reason, whether it makes sense to the beginning mm. of what you want them to do or not. It's useful to do that. But if you are a person who has a lot of emotional limitations in terms of how you see yourself, your worth, and that affects your confidence and the way you relate to others, and your lenses of perceptions are of nothing is safe, no one is safe, or I'm unworthy, or people don't listen to me, or I'm really bad at cold calling, or I'm always forgetting what I want to say, or my voice is ugly, or or I'm super scared of rejection, then no skills of public speaking, selling, influencing are going to work. Oh, Mute myself. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's, uh, it's, it's been, I, th I think a lot of salespeople will listen to this and, and understand a bit more about the psychology and, and hopefully they'll be able to sort of identify where their selling, you know, processes is falling down. So no, thanks so much for, for going through all that um it's been an absolute pleasure speaking um thank you if people want to work with you where can they find you what's the best way to contact you 
I think the best way is um, to contact me on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, I have a link on my profile that says book a one-on-one consultation call. The first thing I do with everyone is to have a free call where I find out if we are fit to work together, if that person is at threshold of change and how of a priority, how much of a priority is for that person to make a change in their life. And then if I think that I can help them as well, then in that call is where I tell them we can start working and this is the method and the process. But that's the first step, booking that call with me um, having like blocking that time in their calendar and see where it goes from there. Awesome. Well, what I'll do is I'll put your LinkedIn and the, um, the link in the bio description. So wherever you're seeing this. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, I have one thing in my LinkedIn as well, which is called the distressing room, which is a protocol that I made. Um, and it is a hypnosis protocol that lasts for 15 minutes or so. And it's an absolute reset of the nervous system. So remember we were talking about how people are not able to reset and rest mm. and resolve stuff. The de-stressing room is a protocol that will help people not only lower their levels of stress, but will make them understand something from the past that maybe is unresolved and is influencing in a disempowering way their present. So if you go to my LinkedIn profile, it's in my feature section is called access it says something like access the distressing room there you put your email you get the audio in your email you can download it and you have it forever you can do it anytime you want awesome i'm gonna i'm gonna check that out as well i think you mentioned this to me last week actually i forgot to check it yeah. out but um i will i will check it <laughs> out know how I will do. I will do. So yeah, go check that out. Um, and yeah, the, the link will be easy to access. But yeah, other than that, thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really, I really enjoy this conversation.